the USA podcast. My name is Ben Fredericks. Uh, today I'm riding solo and uh, I've got a great interview for you. Uh, I'm really excited to bring it to you. Um, but first, just a couple of quick housekeeping notes. You know, uh, we want to bring you a lot of value with this podcast when it comes to investing in notes and, and real estate in general. And for that value, guys, you know, really, if you could just hit that subscribe button and share the show, we'd greatly appreciate it. Also wanted to let you know that we've just released a new newsletter uh, and you can subscribe to that at notetools.com forward slash newsletter. Again, that's notetools.com forward slash newsletter. Uh, the newsletter had been running for, for a lot of time and uh, we just brought it back. We're really excited about it, really proud of it actually. Uh, we're gonna put some great content, content into it every single month. Uh, so you can check that out. There's also going to be deals uh, in that newsletter every month. So if you're uh, shopping for for notes or real estate in general, you know we're going to try to keep that flush full of uh, opportunities there. Also, we are hosting a virtual Note Investor Summit on June 11th and 12th. Uh, since we can't get together in person, uh, we're going to be doing it uh, via Zoom. So uh, we'll have some details on registering for that very shortly, probably by the time you hear the next podcast. And hopefully, we'll be doing an in-person convention. Uh, December 3rd through the 5th. We have it scheduled. Uh, it's in Orlando. And uh, we're really excited about that. Hopefully we can get together in person again uh, as things return to normal and uh, shake each other's hands and do all the things that we're used to doing as social human beings. So, um, But uh, today I'm really excited. Uh, we have a great guest for the show today who I think you're going to find to be incredibly valuable. I first met him in my Investor Fuel uh, mastermind group about a year and a half ago, I think, and immediately became a fan just because of his ability to really think outside the box on a number of different owner financing strategies and just how he structures a deal. And uh, he's done over 400 deals, you know, with over 300 of those being seller finance notes, probably more since then. And, uh, you know, he primarily works out of the Texas markets, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Nick Legamaro. Welcome, Nick. Man, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Um, I'm really excited about this. I, I you know, really admire you know, the work that you do. And uh, when we first sat down at Investor Fuel, you, know, you, you kind of broke down a specific strategy to me that I had never really even considered. And, and we'll dive into that a little bit today. But before we do that, um, can you take a minute and just give us some background on your life as a real, real estate investor and how you got your start? Yeah, so um, I, I, I am, unlike most people, I actually was around pre-2008 in the real estate market. Uh, I think if you pull, pull a lot of investors today, uh, not many of them were probably before the similar situation we're dealing with, with COVID right now. Now, 2008 was a whole different scenario and different reasons, but um, the, the one thing that I was able to I was in real estate probably since about 2002, uh, and I did it. And when 2008 hit, I really realized really quick um, what I was doing wrong. And I'm hoping that it's not a uh, a death sentence for a lot of people that have been sort of riding the wave for the last five or six years because real estate 
in general, it has been very, very uh, easy for most the last five or six years. I think it's going to get a little bit more difficult for many. However, uh, for the folks that have been around, the older guys like myself, um, I think I've learned my lesson from 2008. And now I'm, I've been prepared for this moment uh, for quite some time. Um, and I'm ready that I'm already prepared and we're already moving forward in the, this post-COVID era, if you will, uh, on the note side and the investment strategies and stuff like that. So before 2008, I was, you know, your typical real estate investors. Back then, we didn't have a lot of education. We didn't have a lot of uh, tools. There was no HDTV stuff on or uh, fix and flip shows to even get you even uh, any kind of information, whether, whether it be good or bad. Um, so when 2008 hit, I, I was very fortunate to get out fairly unscathed, but I was extremely scared, uh, to the point where I didn't really, I went back into corporate and I didn't come back out for, till almost, um, the last, uh, the middle part of 2010. So from 2008, when all that initially hit till 10, I was just sitting on the sidelines because I didn't know what to do, how to react how to be able to take advantage of the, the, the situation at hand. Um, and I lost a tremendous amount of opportunity because that was really the ideal opportunity was after that happened till everybody got back in and felt comfortable with the situation. Well, that's where we are today, right? We're in, we're in this post COVID. We still got a little bit of time before the dust settles, but there's going to be a lot of people that are just going to be scared to get back in they're going to be scared to do whatever they're going to do. So the opportunity is going to be extremely uh, uh, exciting, for lack of a better word, to really be able to take uh, to take control of people's. And uh, I mean, there's there's generational wealth that's going to be able to be built in a very short period of time as a result of this. So it's being to take a bad situation and turn it into a positive. So getting back to how I'm in, where I am today. So back in 2010, I got back into business. And, and when I say business, I'm talking about real estate. And I really didn't know where I was going to go. And I started getting into, uh, I started reviewing and started learning as much as I possibly could. Uh, because by 2010, 11, uh, there was educators in the space. There, are, there were REI clubs starting to form. There was information available. There was stuff on the internet. And I said, you know, what do I really want to do? What, I, what do I want to do? Because I know there's wealth to be to be built in uh, through real estate. And I got back into it and it started out as uh, most people started out uh, in the wholesaling side. And because that was the least cost of entry, the, the lower amount of risk, and the it was something that I could do on a very limited budget. Um, so I started getting, uh, I started thinking about it. So I, so what happened is I, <laughs> I'll just get off on a side, uh, side story here. So what, I started, I started selling out, sending out yellow letters and postcards, just like most people did. And I had a very limited budget. So I was in a very small dollar value. Back then, you could get stuff under $100,000. In fact, you get stuff for the real cheap stuff for in the 20s, 30s, even 40,000s of dollars. And that's where I was 10 years ago. I mean, that stuff today is two and three times that price. So I, so I sent out a, yellow letters and postcards and I got a phone call. And the lady calls me and she goes, uh, and I, of course I didn't do nothing. What I, I, I was doing, I did everything wrong. And she goes, I got a house, I got your postcard. 
I said, tell me a little bit about it. She goes, it's a two bedroom, one bath house over in Grand Prairie. I'm in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And, and I asked her, well, how much do you want for it? Of course, the last question you probably should ask, but I asked it. She goes, I want, I want $25,000 for it. I go, okay. I don't I have no idea what a $25,000 house even looks like 10 years ago. But I said, okay, let me go take a look at it. And sure enough, now I know what, now at that time, I knew what a $25,000 house like. It was a little two bedroom, one bedroom POS that looked like it was leaning a little bit this way. And she goes, but you can't go inside. You can't go inside. I got tenants inside. Please do not disturb the tenants. You know, your typical, you know, uh, seller response. I just want to get out. I'm retiring from General Motors. I'm moving to California. So I went over and I drove by and I go, okay, there it is. So I drive down the side, into the street and I see a sign. It says Vende Casa. Well, I know enough Spanish to know what Vende Casa means. So I call the phone number and I go, hey. And she goes, hola. I go, do you speak, do you speak English? Because my Spanish is very limited. Um, and she goes, yeah, I speak English. I go, hey, I got this house for sale. I saw your sign uh, on the street. I have a house for sale. And I wanted to know if you might be know somebody that was interested in buying it. And so I go over all the information. I go, but you can't go inside uh, because there's people, there's tenants. And she goes, how much do you want for it? And I go, 35000 There again, I'm just winging. I don't even have it on the contract. This is literally 20 minutes after I have the conversation with the seller. She goes, um, I'll call you back. I go, okay, she'll call me back. So I get my car, start driving back. And she calls me literally within the hour. And she goes, I got some buyers. They're at the house right now. Oh, great. They're at the house. I got what are they knocking the door? And she goes, I go, she goes, since they can't get inside, they'll say they'll, they'll say they'll give you thirty-two thousand dollars cash. I go, do the math. I go, wait a second, I can get it for twenty-five, thirty-two thousand. Okay, that, that seems like it's a good deal. I'm not a not a financial expert at the time, but I go, that seems good. And I asked her how much she wanted. She goes, I wanted I want fifteen hundred dollars. So I did the math real quick and I go, okay, that's closing cost, but five grand. Still didn't have it under contract. So long story short, got the deal done and, and then I've uh, got a contract that sold and whatnot. So I sold that for cash transaction. Same mailing, letter, not even three days later, I get another phone call from another seller and she goes, and it seemed like it was almost the same deal. I guess that's because that was the way I marketed. She goes, I, want 20, I, she goes, I owe $22,000 to the bank. Um, I just want to get out of it. I don't, I don't live there anymore. I moved. Um, I can't afford the taxes anymore. I just want to get out of it. But this is a much nicer house. And I had it worth about $45,000, $50,000. So I called Lydia and I go, hey, Lydia, I got another house. She goes, um, but I, I go, I want $25,000 down on the house and I'll finance the difference. I'll carry the note, I'll carry a $20,000 note. And I think, I, I don't even remember what it was now. I think it was like for five years at like 5%. It was some ridiculous number that I never would never do again today, but I did it at the time. And she goes, okay, let me see. So sure enough, we get another buyer that comes up with $25,000 down cash. And I write a note for $20,000 $20, for five years. And I go, and this seems too easy. I go, and I know it's not, right? I've done this before. I know this is not. But I, then I started thinking about it. And so I go, hey, Lydia, let me ask you a question. We're, I'm meeting and we're having lunch. And I go, let me ask you a question. I go, how many buyers do you, do you know or have – you know, I didn't even have $25,000 cash liquid. I mean, I had a lot of stuff. But I didn't have $25,000 sitting in my account to do this. And she gets, this, she gets out this notebook 
And she just starts going page after page after page after page. I mean, I kid you not. It was a, there, there must have been hundreds of people in there with their name, their phone number, and how much cash they had. And, and the cash that they had was 5,000, 10,000, 40,000. I saw, I saw people as much as 80, 90, $100,000. And so I go, so Lydia, let me ask you a question. I go, if I could get you nicer houses, if I can get you nicer houses, would you, would you have, would buyers be interested in still putting $25,000 down on an 80 or $90,000 house and us carrying back the terms? And she goes, I think so. Because these houses that I was doing on the first couple, they weren't very nice. I mean, they're $40,000, $50,000 houses and they didn't, we didn't repair any of those. They just sold them as is and we did a deal. I go, well, if we fixed them up and made them livable and nice, would, we be, would they be willing to do it? And she goes, yeah. And so, you know, 600 transactions later, here we are today on how we built basically a buy, fix, sell, create seller financing model. Um, now it's evolved a lot since then, but that's really how it all started. And once we figured out the, you know, the demand and the need and the desire in the marketplace where borrowers needed help on financing that we could show them how to own versus rent for pretty much the same monthly payment, it was, it was over. Because um, like today, in today's environment, I mean, it's gonna get even tougher, even though interest rates are going down low, the ability to qualify is getting more and more difficult. And I haven't seen the 2019 number yet. Well, no, I did see the average decline credit score is somewhere between 700 and 710 right now. So even if you go to get a traditional mortgage and you have a credit score of 7, 710, there's still a, a, a fairly um, high probability that's going to get declined because there's other factors in underwriting. The other big factor is right now we're seeing is that in so uh, banks are only approving about uh, about 45% about 45% of the people that apply, uh, can't even go get a traditional loan. So you take into you take into fact that 45% of the population can't go get a traditional loan and they have already have a 700 credit score that's a perfect recipe for for the take advantage of creating seller financing notes and that's not going to change because uh, more people are becoming uh, self-employed, more people are going to be working for themselves, and the ability to go get a traditional loan um, is just not going to be available in like it was in the past. Yeah, so that was a long, long intro story, but that's sort of the, the, the ten years and ten minutes. That's awesome. So, I mean, if we go back and we look at that, like your story and mine is very similar, like just got crushed in, you know, investing and then said, all right, well, I'm going to check out of this for a little bit and see what I can learn. But we talk about, you know, 2008, like it was forever ago. It was really only 12 years. And it's amazing to me what's changed in terms of being available in, in terms of education. Like you think back to even 10 years to 1998, like, unless you knew somebody, there was like no education, you know, unless your, your parent or a grandparent or maybe a family friend was a real estate investor, who were you really going to learn from, you know? So it was kind of difficult. So I think a lot of people don't recognize just how spoiled they are today and what's available in terms of, you know, content to learn. And it's free too, most of it. I mean, you can find sure. just about everything you need on YouTube. You don't hey, have you're to charge this, right? You're not charging for this spot, it? Yeah, man. Like totally. So this is free. And and you get to to leverage somebody who's been in the trenches just trying to figure it out. And the other thing that you said there was 
You're like, I had no idea what I was doing. All you were doing there was failing forward. And I relate to that so much saying, you know what? All right, I'm just going to figure this out. Like, and if I fail, that's okay. I'm one step closer to, to nailing it down. So my question for you is when you got that opportunity on that second deal to say, hey, I can put a note on this. How, how did you come up with that idea? Did you learn that somewhere or was you that know, just like? I did ask that question now after the fact. And I honestly do not know because I didn't know anybody that was being the bank. I mean, yeah. all the people that I know today that do creative financing, you know, whether it be Mitch Steven and speed, you know, yourself, you know, just everybody that I've taught that never, those, those were, those people were never in my uh, Rolodex per se at the time. Yeah. I just knew that I, I guess the bottom line was, I guess what really was the trigger point is I just don't think I thought anybody had $45,000 in cash to pay for the house. Sure. I didn't have $45,000 of cash. And it took me a long time to take me out of the equation in doing the deals. Because all, it's, I think that's the biggest mistake most investors make. They put themselves in it. Well, they're not going to like this color. Or they're not going to like this finish out. Or they're not going to like this neighborhood. Well, you might not like that color. You right. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that somebody else isn't going to, to like it. And so I learned to take that myself out of that uh, out of that part of the equation a long, long time ago, because um, it's not where I'm gonna it's not where I'm gonna live and raise my family. And what you know isn't maybe appealing to me is extremely attractive to other folks. So I think that was probably the main thing is I just didn't think somebody had it. So I go, how am I gonna get forty five? I don't want to sell for twenty five. I want to sell for forty five. So maybe I'll just make favorable terms. I had a home mortgage. I knew understood what the mortgage was. I don't even think, I, honestly, I don't even know that, uh, I, I, don't, I don't even, I, matter of fact, I know this for a fact, I didn't even amortize the original note. <laughs> simple interest on like a, like a car bank loan, right? right? That just goes to show you how, how little knowledge I knew. I mean, I, was, I had enough to be dangerous, but it was a simple interest five-year note. I don't even know that I, that the, I, well, I know that it didn't even go full term. I think the guy just accelerated and paid it off in like a year. He just kept yeah. paying money and, and, and paying it down, so. Anyway, but then it, from there it evolved, and then we started writing the more traditional stuff, and I started really understanding the concept of, of financing and being the bank and control versus own, um, which is where we are today. Yeah. So, and then you mentioned a second thing there was that somebody had just a notebook. Was this a realtor that had a notebook full of people that? No, it was just, it was, she was marketing for some other people that I guess were doing Sim stuff. You know, I, at the time, I thought I came up with this great brand new idea, right? It's like, <laughs> man, I just came, I just figured out how to, you know, to do something no one else knows how to do. Well, yeah. once you start, it's like when you go buy a car, you go, oh, I just bought this car. And then, you know, you, you know, you buy whatever it is that you buy. And then all of a sudden, you're driving down the road and now you see 15 cars in five minutes, yeah. identical to yours. It's like, oh, maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all. But the, uh, the point is that there was other people that were doing it and then starting to collaborate with them um, and doing certain things and really, you know, fine tuning the process. Cause at the end of the day, this was really, but what it really boiled down at the time and it still applies to, to today. And I mentioned it earlier, it, when you're able to take a, a property and you're able to put it in front of a buyer and you're able to have them make an objective decision, if they can, uh, own this property for $1,200 a month or rent it for $1,200 a month or whatever the numbers are, it makes it extremely easy for the borrower and the potential buyer to say yes. 
But if you have the same house and you can rent it for a thousand or buy it and own it for fifteen hundred, it's no longer as objective because now it becomes more subjective because can I really afford that extra five hundred dollars a month to live in the same house? Yeah. You know, that's sort of that's sort of it as well. Yeah. But that relationship really kind of was the catalyst for you, right? I mean, it gave Absolutely. you a, a lot of additional opportunities. And I think a lot of people pass that by, like they don't realize like there are people out there that are constantly marketing and, and finding new ways and whether it be, you know, a realtor, it could be a mortgage broker that has people that they've had to turn down and Absolutely. they just, they just don't. I was just having a conversation, uh, you know, Pace Morby, another good friend of mine, huge in the creative financing side of it. Um, we just had a conversation about it and just, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, mortgage, you know, I, we already know the traditional lenders only, you know, they only approve 55 or 60% of the people that come through their door. What yeah. happens to the rest of them? Pick up the phone, call a mortgage, mortgage banker, mortgage broker, loan officer, whatever they call them, wherever you are, and ask them, hey, how many, how many people have you had to turn down for whatever reason? Whether it be DTI, credit score, could be, a, could be one of seven or eight different things that prevent that bank from writing the loan for that borrower, regardless of what the rate is. Right. That's awesome, man. So basically, you know, uh, let's say I'm new to note investing, right? So you, you kind of got your start in it by accident. I did too, really. I mean, I, I met my mentor and I was like, he told me what he did in terms of owner financing. I was like, this is a thing like this really exists. I never heard of that. Like, I just thought it was rental property and then banks. I never considered that, you know, uh, holding paper on a property was even like a real deal. Uh, so when I, when I discovered it, I, my hair was blown back, you know, I was just like, this is unbelievable. So, you know, let's say I'm new to this and I, all I've done up to this point is, you know, uh, rentals or wholesaling, you know, I, I'm just trying to get my foot in the door and say, all right, I want to create some real wealth here. Where do you think like the best place is to start? You know, I would say I would definitely, I would definitely look to purchase pre-existing notes versus going and creating them yourself because, okay. um, because there's a lot of moving parts to note creation and just notes in general. I mean, a wholesale, you know, there's a lot of people that, that get into real estate and they want to fix and flip, right? So, or they want to buy, they're going to buy a property, they're going to fix it, they're going to turn it into a rental. Okay. That's fine. That's, that's a, a very viable model. We'll see how viable it is the next six to 12 months, but up until a month ago, extremely viable. Um, but there's, when you write a note, there's a lot of things you have to be extremely cautious of. You have things like Dodd-Frank compliance, you have SAFE Act, you have, is it a qualified mortgage, is it a conforming mortgage? How, how high can I write the interest rate? They're all very doable things and people like ourselves that have done this numerous times, we understand that. But if you're only gonna do this once or twice, or maybe even three times, is it really worth the energy and effort to go through and understand all of that stuff from a legal perspective? Because you don't want to um, put yourself in a bad position, right? Yeah. You know, I, when I was in a college, this funny story, the, uh, I was walking across, I was crossing the street going to class and um, I get to the other side and a police officer comes up and goes, Son, you know that you're not putting the crosswalk is over there. Shouldn't you know you were jaywalking? I go, sorry, sorry, officer. I didn't know. I'm sorry. I didn't know that was 
I couldn't do that. And he goes, ignorance of the law is no excuse. I never forget that. And, I, and it's the same thing goes, goes applies to this. It goes, you know, just because you don't know doesn't mean you're not still can't be responsible or liable for stuff. So you yeah. have to really surround yourself with the right people, whether they be the, uh, you know, the servicing companies or the escrow title companies. Sure, I can go write a contract on a napkin and agree to do a deal with you and you can pay me cash if you want. But is that really the right way to do it? Or should you do it that way? You don't want to create yourself uh, a you know, problem that could come back to bite you uh, at some point in the future. So my recommendation is go at, go find, um, a, you know, uh, if you want to get into it, go buy a note and then go through the due diligence and see what's, what's there and what's not there and follow a checklist. And then if that's something that you want to move forward to, you can surely go in and start creating notes. Or you can find somebody to help you follow and do that process too. We do it all the time. Um, we help people write notes and there's a way that we stay into the deal. Um, not in all states because see, the problem is every state's different. There's judicial and there's non-judicial states. I'm in Texas, it's a non-judicial state. It's extremely pro-lender, meaning lender wins, borrowers lose. You know, because of the way the law is, you go to another state that's very pro borrower or pro tenant, you know, a state like Illinois, yeah. uh, you know, they might say, oh, we're not doing anything for two years because we just feel bad for everybody. You know, yeah, you know, it just, it, it is what it is. So you have to be able to make sure you understand whatever those um, constraints or, or situations may cause and if, if you get into a default situation, the idea is never put, never allow the, the put it so you, you, you're in a best position. So even in the event of a default, you're still protected. That's yeah. Really the key. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you said something interesting there and this is, you know, I, I never thought of that, you know, when I first got started, I was just like, all right, I'm just going to dive in here. But it, it's true because as I've looked back over the last several years, as I've built my own, owner financing business, it, it takes a tremendous amount of systems to put in place and nice. human resources and, you know, the people that you got to manage throughout that process. So, you know, it, for yeah, it's not, if you're only going to do a handful of deals, it doesn't, the, the building this huge infrastructure and system doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. You need to be able to recoup it and recover it and you need to have it to go over time, you know, where a wholesale deal or a fix and flip might be 15 steps, right? Yeah, you add on the component of the financing side. You're at you're tripling the number of steps, and each step has to make sure that you you have checks and balances in place. But at the same time, it's a huge, it's a huge huge industry and huge vertical. A lot of people don't realize this that uh, in 2000 just got the 2019 numbers. It's been trending about the same for the last five years. The amount of seller financing that's been written in the United States is about almost $25 billion, billion with a B. That's yeah. a big number. I mean, $25 billion, when a lot of people don't even know what seller financing is, let alone they can do it, and you're telling me it's a $25 billion industry, just puts it in perspective that there's a lot of opportunity out there, and there's a lot of notes to be bought in the open market. You can create your own notes, and you can sell notes. You can, you can JV and do a lot of things to really yeah. uh, 
to really you know, take advantage. Yeah, and if you think about what you said, that statistic you said earlier, where maybe forty percent or more are turned down. I mean, that's a huge market like uh, that you can work. You know, so these are people that do, may have money, and I'm sure you're going to talk about that here shortly in terms of you know, like your ideal prospect for the deals you, you're doing. But you you know, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity that a lot of people might leave on the table just because they don't know. You know, so I, I, I come across this a lot with wholesalers. Like they, they think that wholesaling is their only option. And when they're missing the, the ball is, you know, hey, this seller has a problem, but you can also solve it through a number of different ways. And that's where you can really differentiate yourself is by getting educated on it where you can show, hey, I could wholesale this property for you. I can sell it or I could take it down myself, you know, offer you cash with private money or, you know, I can structure a note so many different ways and and people most people don't know about it they're just so focused on one particular core uh which is fine they're i think scared or they not know you know there's a lot of different factors for sure you know we got to do it matter of fact i mentioned wholesalers i do um i work with uh, a lot of wholesalers just in that situation where i teach them and educate them on how to be plan b right we want to be plan b your plan a is to go get the deal go get cash deal Get it, try and get make transactional. But when that bar, when that seller says, "I just can't do it," and there's too much of a spread, we can come in and show you how to be a Plan B option, and give that seller another opportunity, which is exactly where we are today. Today, you know, May 2020, not even 60 days post COVID, right? That's where this opportunity is going to be moving forward: is the ability to go out and be able to be able to get properties contracted. Uh, on terms in, in the creative mechanism because cash is not going to be because the seller is not going to want to take the discount that a wholesaler is going to demand in a buyer's market. We are in a buyer's market right now, yeah. not a seller's market. Buyer is going to control the hammer for the for the foreseeable future, not the seller. You know, it's just it's just the way that it's going to be. And where the last seven eight years has been a seller's market. Sellers been controlling the hammer. It's shifting now. And the way that we can get sellers, not to get off on, on, a, on a tangent here, to get sellers their pricing, the one that they want, cash offer 70,000, seller wants 100,000. Well, how do you do that? Well, the way you do it is by coming in and do creative financing and buying that property in terms, which is another, which is the inverse of what we've been talking about, creating the note for you to benefit from um, and give the seller uh, their full asking price on terms. And then taking that and use, instead of taking that property down with cash, now you just take it down with terms and you can go do what we know as a wrap mortgage. And we do yeah. a lot of mortgages, whole nother conversation, whole nother, whole nother uh, hour discussion. But there again, it all starts, at, it all starts with the acquisition of the property. Yeah. So you talked about somebody that says, hey, let me just get in on a couple of deals here a year. Um, you know, if they, if they start evaluating notes, like if you're looking at a deal, what are on a, on a buying some paper, what would you say are like, you know, maybe like your top things on your checklist that you need to, to look at in order to make sure it's a square deal? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. So I always go back and look at how we've done it. Okay. And how we did it and do it today is, is really the exception to the rule. If you want to know the truth, Ben. When we written, when I write my notes, and I, I always write my notes as if I'm going to hold them for the for the term that I write them for. If it's a 20 year, 30 year term, I'm writing them 
as if I'm going to hold them and keep them for the length of the, of the term. So I want to make sure the house is in good, good, you know, you know, good condition. I want to make sure the borrower has been underwritten correctly and they can actually make the payment. I don't really care if they're, uh, you know, what their job is or where it comes from. I, you know, we want to make sure that uh, we, I, I like looking at stuff like where is it located, physically located, not only the, the, the city, but, you know, the zip code. Um, those are just some of the criteria that we, I, I look at. I also want to make sure I don't like personally doing things above a median home price in a specific area. So if the median home price, like in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, is somewhere between 240 and 250 I'm really not playing in that space or above it. I want to keep my stuff on the, on the left side of that curve uh, for a lot of different reasons. I want to stay in the affordable, in the affordable range for a lot of different reasons. I want to be, I want to be where the masses are. So if I have to take that property back in a default situation, either for cash or keys, deed in lieu, or, or if I have to go down the foreclosure uh, path, I want to know that I'm going to be able to take around, take around and turn that property around and get my cash back because banks always get paid. Yeah. Okay. Even in today's uh, environment of, of COVID and there's forbearance and maybe some loan modifications, the bank's ultimately going to get paid. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about being the bank and we're talking about controlling that piece of real estate, not owning it. And we control it with the promissory note. And the promissory note allows us to get paid according to the contract. And if the borrower doesn't pay, then give us what we get to do. We get to do something to, uh, to get, our, get our investment back. So those are the kind of things that I like to look at. Um, you know, you want to make sure there's, you want to pull title and make sure there's no other encumbrances on it, no uh, uh, other liens or judgments or uh, things like that. Um, I prefer to have my taxes and insurances already escrowed in the note when I buy. Um, a lot of seller financing, they don't really do that because um, it looks like the payment is actually lower to the borrower, even though they're deferring the, the thing out. Um, I like all my notes to be uh, uh, serviced by a third party servicing company. Um, and if it isn't, I want to make sure I get it in there because for 30, 35 bucks a month, it's surely not worth managing the escrows of taxes and insurance for that. So. And if there's a slow pay, late pay, they jump in and handle it uh, and, and so on. Um, you know, you got stuff like taxes and insurance. You want to make sure that, the, that their current insurance is actually uh, in force. Um, if there was, and then if there was any, what was, how was the borrower underwritten when the note was originally created, right? So did they take, an, did they take any kind of an application? Did they do a, did they, did they get a copy of the driver's license? Did they get a copy of the, uh, you know, uh, credit report? It just, it just, how much down payment do they get? How much, how much money is the borrower um, financially committed to in this property? Are they in it for, you know, $500 on a $100,000 house? Or are they in it for $15,000? You know, those are all factors that come in. And then sometimes we'll even have, an, we'll even interview the, the borrower and just to get an update on where they are, depending on how long they, the note's been in place and what their intentions are, especially if we can't get a really clear idea of what pay history is, because pay history is really important. It doesn't mean it's gonna predict the future, but it does show you their past tendencies. And if they've been paying 
the note holder directly in cash, really hard to determine what pay history is. That's the other reason why we want to use servicing companies because you might buy that note today, but you might turn around and want to sell it for cash in five years. So you need to create infrastructure. You need to create the process so that that file is stacked correctly so that when you do want to get maximum value out, um, you're able to do that. In fact, what we'll do if anybody, I don't know how uh, the listeners are going to reach out to you, but anybody that either um, opts into an email or wants to get more information, will um, just finish. I have, a, I have this, I have this actually just finished proof and I got a note selling formula, which is basically a guide to getting top dollar for your notes, which is great if you're selling, but more importantly, I think if you read it from the buyer's perspective, you can also look at things from the other other side of it. It's written more for selling the notes, like when we, cause we're a note buyer as well. And we, we're all about transparency and poor disclosure. Look, you're gonna, if you're gonna sell us a note, these are the kind of things that we would expect. If you don't have them, not a problem. We can still buy and there's still value in it. It's just assessing the risk and based on, based on the risk that's identified will determine what the value is that we're gonna be willing to pay on that note based on those, those findings. That's awesome. Yeah, so you can essentially reverse engineer how yeah, to find the right deal. Exactly. exactly. So that's awesome, man. That's a that's a huge value. So thank you so much for sharing that. I, I get you know at the noteworthy conferences or anything that we do, it's like, well, how do I know what note to buy? And what Nick just gave you was a huge breakdown of all the things that he kind of looks at, and I'm sure there's a few more, but this is the baseline of all of that. So. If you've been questioning like, okay, well, how do I know what's good to buy? Go back and listen to what he just said. And he gives you a great breakdown. And we will make sure we'll put in the show notes uh, his note selling formula as well so that you can have access to that. So thank you. Um, so I want, before, um, you know, we're, we got about 20 minutes left, but I want to talk to you about and I have you share how you structure your deals because you've got a really cool way of structuring your deals when you own or finance a property and where you essentially get to keep, you know, a free note on the deal. And can you give a, an overview of how you structure that when you're, when you're putting together something? Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the beginning when um, uh, my partner and I, uh, John Montero, some of you might know John Montero, John Montero is uh, he's a, he's a syndicator on the apartment side now. We still do. We do still do some deals together. But he was one of my uh, uh, original investors when I started Rylex Capital back in 2010, and then became uh, a partner in Rylex Capital up until the time we sold to uh, uh, we sold all our assets and our technologies and systems to a bank. So just to put it in perspective, everything that I did from 2010 till 2018 was bought by a bank. So. I'm not saying I'm the best at what I do, but I will say this is that uh, we built a company to be sold. We under we we put systems and processes in place. So when we wrote the notes, they were going to be for institutional consumption, uh, not some mom and pop buyer, which is not a problem. But if it's good enough for the banks, it should be good enough for you is the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. And so when we've done all the underwriting and the due diligence and all that stuff, it was with an institutional buyer in mind, knowing that. Uh, best best business practices from acquisition to disposition were an integral part of what we did, and uh, then we end up selling that off. So here we are. Um, that's and that's how we, we are today. So all these um, the stacking of the file, if you will, the creating of the note is 
ultra, ultra important. So up until, you know, I, we probably wrote, I don't know, four or five, somewhere between four and 500 notes. In the beginning, we were trying to build a business to sell. We didn't know that we were going to sell, but our model was always build to sell. Um, we didn't know if we would or if we would keep this forever. Now we know that we did sell and we were able to sell, but we were building to sell. So we, um, the way that we were only, the only way that we, we thought we could do that at the time, okay, was to basically build and write these notes and sell them, sell the notes, because that's how we would have to capitalize our business. Because even though a 10% interest rate note on a 30-year term amortize is a great return and a great investment, you run out of cash. I mean, how yeah. many of those can I possibly do? Pick a number. If I had $10 million, how many can I do? I run out. It's not a scalable, replicatable model unless I have the ability to get cash back out. Yeah. And which is a little bit more tricky than a rental property because most don't understand how to uh, borrow against a note. You can do things called hypothecation, which we're not going to get into the details on that, but that's really about the, that's the equivalent to going and getting a loan on a rental property and having debt and then having a tenant here. So um, I'm not a fan of hypothecating uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, uh, the main reason is I, even though, let's just say I have a $10 million portfolio and my cost basis is $7 million. Okay. So I hypothecate the, my $10 million portfolio, but I still have $7 million in exposure against the 10 million that I'm collecting. So maybe I have 7 million at 5% and I got 10 million at 10%. The arbitrage is a good thing. However, if these 10 million stop paying for whatever reason or slow paying or there's forbearance, I still have a financial responsibility over here to the, to the financial institution that I hypothecated against. Yeah. I don't really like that too much personally. I would rather give a little bit less. So what I did and what we do is I write a first and a second lien. So let's just take a $100,000 uh, note, for example, $100,000 uh, not a $100,000 note, a $100,000 sales price on a house. So we always get a minimum of 10% down. Um, always have, always will. We never uh, take less than 10% down payment. Um, we will take 15 or 20, but never less than 10. So let's just say it's a $100,000 note, or excuse me, I keep saying no, $100,000 asset. We get $10,000 down. I always write the first lien at 75% of the value. So in this situation, I'm going to write a $75,000 first. I'm going to write a, I'm going to write a $15,000 second and $10,000 is going to be the down payment. So what does that mean that I have? So I have this note that I just wrote and let's just say for argument's sake, um, my cost basis is $75,000. I'm just going to keep the calculations simple. So I, I write these two notes. I write a first and a second, 75 and 20, and 75 and 15 with $10,000 down. I go and I sell my first lien because it's a 75% value to a note investor, a note buyer. And I sell that relatively close to par. And so that when I get the proceeds from that sale of that first lien position of $75,000, that money goes to pay off my underlying debt. So my underlying debt is now gone. I have no, I have zero cost basis because I just cleared that out with that. So what are we left with? Well, we're left with a, a first lien that's just been sold to an investor. Then I get some transactional cash out of the deal because I keep the down payment. 
less my cost of closing. So maybe that 10,000 becomes seven or eight, but I'm also left with a $15,000 in this situation uh, example note. And that's amortized over 30 years at probably somewhere between nine and 10%. And it's a second junior lien position to the first. Now, would I prefer to have a first lien and first and a second? Absolutely. There's definitely no question about it. First liens are much more valuable than seconds. However, what do I know? I know what the property looks like. I know who the borrower is. I know what I, I'm, I'm in a position if it goes into default to cure that problem, deed in lieu, cash for keys, taking the property back. I am not worried about anything that can happen to the in the situation. In fact, since I have zero cost basis in the deal anymore, even if I got zero money five years from now on that second lien, I'm not, I'm not exposed in any, any way. And it's a good deal for the investor too, because I am staying junior to, to that investor's first lien position. That's a value to somebody because they know that if they don't get paid, I don't get paid. And I'm going to tell I always get paid. I will always get paid being the bank. I may not get paid today. I may not get paid tomorrow. I may not get paid six months from now, but I will get paid. And I've done over, I don't know that I lost count. I had 640, 650 notes. I think we've gone to a default situation 15 or 20 times. I don't know what the percentage on that, but it's very low relative yeah. to industry average. I think out of 15, I think only four or five of them actually went to foreclosure for different reasons. I don't know how that's even possible uh, in the last eight years, but they did. Uh, now we did cash for keys and deed and lieu and stuff like that, um, which is fine. But the ones that went to foreclosure, we made more money on those ones in the foreclosure than we did the other ones because we just, just we have, they, it's the way it worked. But, we don't want foreclosure for anybody. That isn't our model. We try to save and help people stay in them uh, as much as possible. But, you know, things, things happen. People get sick, things happen, they move, they, they, they can no longer afford it. And, you know, I think we're going to see more of that moving forward. So I think from the note side, I think the, going back to what we talked about, you know, understanding what the true value of the property is at the time that you buy the note, okay, that it really is worth $100,000 not $80,000 or $90,000. And what is the loan to value of the borrower to the note? So like in my situation, it's really worth $100,000. Your investment is, 70, uh, is at 75%. That's a fairly good number. We like to see it. We like investors to be, you know, no more than 85%. Um, it can go a little bit higher. And it really what the de determining factor is, is, what is the loan to value to the, um, for the borrower, not the note holder? Because a lot of times we'll see um, a note uh, when you go to buy a note, maybe the borrower has paid it down or maybe their value has gone up and the loan value is actually extremely low, which could make the investment the value go higher, but you really are only care about where the position is of the borrower. Because that's really, the borrower is what's gonna control the deal. If the borrower has a tremendous amount of equity in the deal, they're likely not going to let you come and take the property back. Yeah. So when you when you were structuring the 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 actual acquisition of this particular property, right? So you're maybe let's say you're buying it from a wholesaler. Do you have a uh, you know sort of your target formula saying, all right, this is actually this is where I need to be all in to make this a workable deal? Because if you're selling the note 
you know, that first close to par to get all your money back to your original investor. Do you sort of know there? Are, I, I know you yeah. do. What is, what is that sort of target number that you need to acquire that property for? Well, before COVID, it was 78% of value, of true value. I did all my, I do my own valuations. Uh, uh, we look at, we, we have our own internal ability to go and do appraisals and BPOs. And I would never, ever exceed 78% of market value of what the value actually uh, is. Okay. Um, so uh, now I've reduced that down in the business that we're doing more closer to 75%. Uh, but there again, we're playing in a space where we're in, we're below the house, the median home prices, uh, yeah. which is a very desirable place for us to be. We're not dealing stuff in, you know, above, above the median price point. Awesome. All right, cool. So uh, you mentioned something there in terms of like opportunities. So, you know, I think, and I've said this on the show, you know, pretty much every episode, you know, in the last several weeks is that this is probably going to be one of the biggest opportunities we'll ever see in our lifetime. What do you think are, you know, going to be sort of uh, your focus points on this in terms of, you know, acquisitions of deals and, you know, dispoing those deals for owner finance? You know, what do you have a, a sort of game plan that you think you're going to be working going forward? Yeah, I think I'm, if right now it's full steam ahead on, on trying to acquire notes. I mean, I want to go buy notes because here's the beauty of, of notes is that um, just like there's motivated sellers for uh, houses, there's also motivated sellers for, for promissory notes. Yeah. And, you know, the situation is if they are at a uh, if they need the cash, they might be getting five hundred dollars a month in cash flow. But and they, they may rather have fifty thousand dollars cash in lieu of the cash flow. So that's what we do as, as as note buyers. We go out and we buy either portfolios of notes or from individuals and we bring them in house. We clean up the notes. We make them, we make sure the files are stacked ready, and then we make them available on a one-off basis or as needed to note investors, right? So that's what this is what we're talking about. So we still create some notes, but it's, I can't create nearly as many notes as I can go out and buy that have already been done. So like when we were talking about the, the, the due diligence checklist and things that people should be looking at, that's all the stuff that we do internally, because like I said from the beginning, even though my exit is to, to buy notes, sell notes, buy notes, sell notes, every time I buy a note, I, 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 my, the mindset is that I'm always buying it to hold for the term of the note, whether I'm buying it or creating the note. So, you know, the opportunity is, and what we're looking for is, is to really have note invest, people that want to get into note investing, that want to buy notes, that want to have the ability to be the bank versus a, uh, a landlord, right? They're, they're, they're afraid of the market um, on what it's going to do. Um, notes is a, is a very secure investment strategy. And I know you've talked about this on many things, but it's collateralized by the actual property, the actual real estate itself. So, you know, that's what we're doing. We're, we're uh, you know, we have investors that we provide um, opportunities for to basically buy and hold notes and you do the same thing. And that's really where I think the opportunity is. But it doesn't matter how many people we share this with and talk about, we can never fulfill everything. The demand for what we have in the supply 
that we can get our hands to or create is um, selling selling it is not gonna, not going to be the issue, especially post COVID, because it's the best alternative in my opinion that you can do. I mean, you can go have a rental portfolio, and you can have multifamily, and you can take there's those are those are opportunities that a lot of people have. But I've said it once. I said. Before, many times there's a reason why banks are in the banking business and why the biggest buildings in the city are banks is because banks know how because when you start dealing with amortization and you understand how that works and you understand control versus own i much rather control versus own i can control assets anywhere in the country all over from anywhere in the world by this model and i can also buy using my own personal cash to do this or i can invest in my iras my self-directed IRAs or Roth IRAs or whatever I have um, to be able to do the same thing. And I can, the beauty of notes is they're extremely liquid, right? Even yeah. though the third, even though the term might be 30 years, you might just say, I just want to get 10% return on this for three years. I'm going to go sell it again on the open market. And you can do that. It's the beauty of it. You can, this is so much easier than a rental property from if you want cash flow, because you can go buy a note and do the due diligence or have somebody do it for you and be getting cash flow instantaneously in as, you know, seven days, as quick as yeah. you can under, underwrite and, and do the due diligence on the, on the note itself. That's how quickly, because they're already performing the notes and a lot of time, guess what they're doing? It's already, it's, it, you're, you're generating cash flow instantaneously among, among, among once you buy the property or buy the note, excuse me. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Yeah. I think I just had a conversation with somebody, you know, uh, in a, at a meeting where they were talking about how they have both rentals and notes. And I asked him, I said, which, which one gives you less agita at the end of the day? <laughs> he said, oh, definitely my notes. You know, there's a trade off. If, you, if somebody really wants to be as passive as you possibly can, notes is the way to go because look i have a, my i have a home mortgage i still have it on my house um and because it's long story but it's with bank of america and i've had it for 20 years i've never once called the bank right however will roof gets hail damaged i don't call the bank you know i get a slab leak and i have a plumbing issue i don't call the bank there's a value in that so as, as people need to determine do i really want to screw around with tenants and trash and vacancies and property management companies and you know there's a list that goes a mile long on you know HOA fees and uh, do you get depreciation sure but and but there's a cost associated with that because yeah rental property is going to cost you probably I think it's about thirty five percent it could be even more of the net of the gross revenue right guess what's on the on the note side if you're getting a nine if you're getting a nine or hundred dollar a month P and I payment principal and interest, that's all yours. You don't, there's nothing else that, that that's a hundred percent your money. And the best part about it, you're getting your interest first. And when somebody understands amortization and runs an amortization schedule and they look at how much money they're getting on their investment, their, their yield is, is good, but their, their risk is mitigated every year that goes by because you're getting a 10% interest on a hundred thousand note dollar note for Example, you're getting a ten. You're basically getting nine hundred ninety dollars in interest a month. You know, ten dollars that goes down the principal pay down. So, go out a year. You're getting about ten thousand dollars in interest on a hundred thousand dollar note. Now your risk is down to ninety thousand. You get another year of interest. It goes down to eighty thousand. 
maybe the property value goes up 5%. So now, two years from now, your exposure is 80,000. And the, you know, you see where I'm going with this? Oh, it goes like this. It doesn't chase it the wrong direction because you get paid first as a note holder that is being the bank. And that's the beauty of it. And a great place to end. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I, I wish I could talk to you for, about this for a couple hours. We got to have you back again. on at some point. So <laughs> for sure, we'll dive in deeper into some other stuff, but you brought a, a tremendous amount of value. I'd encourage everybody to go back and listen to this a couple of times because there's just some great nuggets in there that Nick dropped for you today. So uh, where can people connect with you? And yeah, so you can, they, they can go to uh, usanotepro.com. Uh, that's our, uh, our note website. That's where we have a lot of this information. Now, a lot of stuff's being updated right now uh, because of COVID. So we were trying to, you know, re-message um, some of the, the content to be more applicable to the changing uh, times. But um, you can go to usanotepro.com. I believe you can, uh, if you, um, some of the information, uh, if you send an email out to support at USA Pro or even to me personally, Nick at USA Pro, um, and we'll be able to uh, stay in touch. We'll get you available. We'll get you registered and get you on our, uh, on our newsletters as they be, when they become, um, uh, when the new ones are released and stuff like that. There's other information in there stuff on due diligence and we do articles and you know we're starting to really take advantage of um, social media and content to really educate potential buyers and sellers because we can't sell a note to an, a note investor unless we're able to buy it first yeah right? so this is very similar to the wholesaling i know we're, we're coming up to the, the end of the thing but really this is not a whole lot of difference than whole, uh, than fixing and flipping a property when we buy the note, we're buying it in a distressed situation, and then we got to look at it. And we got to fix the note a lot of times, and fixing the note might mean making sure the file stack correctly. The buyer is all the information there. So when we turn around and sell that note, it's in the best possible package it can be for our note investor too, because we really truly want this to be passive, and the safety net is us staying in on the back end of these deals. Uh, either in the form of a partial or a second or a second note. So, just go to USA Note Pro. Look, happy to talk to anybody. If anybody's got any deals or needs any help in structuring, depending on the state, we can either help with that or maybe direct them in the right direction. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Nick. We appreciate you, man. And uh, I'll look forward to talking with you soon. All right, Ben. Thanks Thank again for having me. Take right. care.